We are back. Chapter three, Capitalist Realism. Uh, Capitalism and the Real is the title of the chapter. Paul, do you you want to start? Would you mind starting? I would love to. Thank you very much. Capitalist realism is not an original coinage. It was used as far back as the 1960s by a group of German pop artists and by Michael Schutzen in his 1984 book, Advertising, The Uneasy Persuasion both of whom were making parodic references to socialist realism. What is new about my use of the term is the more expansive, even exorbitant meaning that I ascribe to it. Capitalist realism, as I understand it, cannot be confined to art or to the quasi-propagandistic way in which advertising functions. It is more like a pervasive atmosphere, conditioning not only the production of culture, but also the regulation of work and education, and acting as kind of has a kind of invisible barrier constraining thought and action. If capitalist realism is so seamless, and if current forms of resistance are so hopeless and impotent, where can an effective challenge come from? A moral critique of capitalism, emphasizing the ways in which it leads to suffering, only reinforces capitalist realism. Poverty, famine, and war can be presented as an inevitable part of reality, while the hope that these forms of suffering could be eliminated easily painted as naive utopianism. Capitalist realism can only be threatened if it is shown to be in some way inconsistent or untenable. If, that is to say, capitalism's ostensible realism turns out to be nothing of the sort. That's a big, it's a big challenge. Well, yeah, a massive, massive challenge. And we've, we've talked also already about how it, it is so frustrating how malleable capitalism is and how it can subsume or consume uh, a lot of the attacks talks about John Carpenter's movie, the thing and how it just is very similar morphs to whatever, whatever you need it to be to feel comfortable with it. Yep. Um, I'll call the other end of just for this capitalism, let's call the other end humanity and valuing that a little more. I like to think about it like a go board. Have you ever watched like competitive go? I haven't watched competitive go. I tried to get okay. into go a little bit. Small little tangent. I just got into it because it's actually past this point now, but it was like in a few years back, an AI landmark, like AI had pretty much cleaned the board with chess, um, but it was unable to take out the best go players reliably just due to the more computations available for it. If that has that the hump has been passed and AI is pretty dominant in go now, but I just love the games where it would look like one dude was so fucked. He'd have like one little piece in the corner and he'd be like, oh no, dude, fucking black is coming in. This dude is fucked. And then bam, he just made the right move and the whole board changes. And I'd like to think that that is super possible with the current situation, that it will just take that like one one move in the right section to start to flip people out of this fugue state, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. And that's uh, totally true. And I mean, historically... That's what has happened. I mean, you talk about like the Russian Revolution, you know, and when the women marched on Women's Day for bread, uh, Lenin heard about it and he was like, you know, that's that's nice of them or whatever. But he, he didn't feel compelled to try to make an effort to get back to Russia until months later, you know. Um, and so it's not like any of the when those women were marching, any of them were thinking, hey, we are going to create a new domino effect. Right, right. exactly. We're not going to, uh, they didn't think they would take down Tsarist Russia or anything, you know? Right. So, yeah. 
You just never know. I guess I'll read the next little bit. Okay. Needless to say, what counts as realistic, what seems possible at any point in the social field, defined by a series of political determinations, an ideological position can never be really successful until it is naturalized, and it cannot be naturalized while it is still thought of as a value rather than a fact. Accordingly, neoliberalism has sought to eliminate the very category of value in the ethical sense. Over the past 30 years, capitalist realism has successfully installed a business ontology in which it is simply obvious that everything in society, including healthcare and education, should be ran has should be run as a business. Uh, and I'll I'll stop there. They've obviously it's so clear how good of a job capitalist realism has done, at least in the American context. Just that built-in thought that healthcare cannot be run privately. Uh, and the, at least to me, relatively newer movement, as in it wasn't my whole lifetime, uh, of the push for privatized or chartered schools. It's pretty weird to me because, you know, it's not like there's any part of the world that doesn't have capitalist foundations. But America seems so much more stubborn on those two things. Uh, those seem to be the things that like the rest of the world or, you know, when I say rest of the world, I, I just, I guess I mean like EU and things of that nature, have just been like, okay, obviously healthcare and education need to be a social program, um, you know, government ran. That's important enough that we can't risk that to private business. Uh, and in America, we're just the complete opposite. And we often have that narrative that those other countries have shitty healthcare and education when any simple Google search can prove that that is not uh, the case. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, back to the very first, or the first article, there was a time just a few months ago that I thought America was maybe over that hump, that maybe the, we had seen some light at the end of the tunnel with that. And obviously I would. But like we were just talking a moment ago, right? The, the material conditions can change so quickly that it can go from, we definitely think this is happening to, oh, it's not happening right now to, it's definitely happening right now. You know, yeah, and it's, I mean, and it happens so quick. It can almost be like uh, you, you don't know it's happening until after it happened. Right. Like you yeah, don't know it's yeah. a full blown revolution until you're at least part way into it. You know? Yeah. As any number of radical theorists from, oh man. Brecht, yeah. These are from, some, sorry, from, I fucked you. Okay. I fucked you real okay. good here. No, no, no. It's all good. I know. I know some of them as many, <laughs> as, as any number of radical theorists from Breck through to Foucault and Badu have maintained uh, em, emancipatory. Okay, let's start that all over. Dude, that was a masterpiece, by the way. <laughs> um, as any number of radical theorists from Breck, from Breck through to Foucault and Badu have maintained emancipatory politics must always destroy the appearance of a quote-unquote natural order, must reveal what is presented as necessary and inevitable to be a mere contingency, just as it must make what was previously deemed to be impossible seem attainable. It is worth recalling that what is currently called realistic was itself once impossible. The slew of privatization that 
took place since the 1980s would have been unthinkable only a decade earlier. And the current political economic landscape with unions in abeyance, utilities, railways denationalized could scarcely have been imagined in 1975. Conversely, what was once eminently possible is now deemed unrealistic. Modernization, in quotes, Badu bitterly observes, is the name for a strict and servile definition of the possible. These forms invariably aim at making impossible what used to be uh, pr practicable for the largest number and making profitable for the dominant oligarchy, what did not used to be so. At this point, it is perhaps worth introducing an elementary theoretical distinction from Lacanian psychoanalysis, which Zizek has done so much to give contemporary currency. The difference between the real and reality, as Zubuk, how, how do you say that, Paul? No, I'm going to guess, but Alenka Zupanki. Okay, can, no can we Zubanki. just look at it? I'm going to look it up. Let's yeah. Alenka, I'm sure on okay. fucking the Zubanki part. <laughs> I just go Alenka Zubankish. Okay. As Alenka Zubankish explains, psychoanalysis position of a reality principle invites us to be suspicious of any reality that presents itself as natural. The reality principle, Zubankish writes, is not some kind of natural way associated with how things are. The reality principle itself is ideological uh, mediated. Is that right? Mediated? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, um, one could even claim that it constitutes the highest form of ideology. The ideology that presents itself as empirical fact or biological uh, economic necessity and that we tend to perceive as non-ideological. It is precisely here that we should be most alert to the functioning of ideology. For Lacan, the real is what any reality must suppress. Indeed, reality constitutes itself through just this repression. The real is an unrepresentable X, a traumatic void that can only be glimpsed in the fractures and in, in consistencies in the field of apparent reality. So one strategy against capitalist realism could involve invoking the reals underlying the reality that capitalism presents us or presents to us. I'm going to super tangent here, but this is, I think what, just kind of what they're talking here. And I'm probably a little bit off base, but what this makes me think of the most is getting in discussions with libertarians and their concepts uh, where they go the other way that like basically extreme capitalism, everything will function the best under. And they just, you know, they don't want to pay taxes. They don't want any involvement with anything. Capitalism is what makes things function. And if we just go that route completely, we'll finally reach that real utopia that capitalism can present. And yet they always ignore the fact that pretty much every nicety in their daily life uh, came from a government 
very least like sponsored program or a government funded program. It's like, do you like driving your car on roads? Yeah, most people do. That only happened because of a large scale government program. Like there is no private company that could have interstated the United States and made it affordable uh, for them or for people driving it. Same with most telecommunication networks. All of that shit was made only possible by government programs. Um, and yet libertarians like to pretend that the opposite is reality, that the government is slowing these things down um, when in reality, none of this would exist at all. Um, because as you can see with current cell phone networks, these private companies aren't willing to put in the money necessary for infrastructure in places that aren't profitable. That's why you don't get fucking cell phone service in the middle of Wyoming. If that was a government program, you fucking would because it'd be a utility as opposed to a need to be profit thing. So to plug it in to their their framework here, so for the for so the libertarian reality is that government doesn't work, that government is the problem, that capitalism can fix everything. But the real, the yes. ca- capital R real is the <clears throat> fact that roads, you know, sewage systems, water, electricity, electrical grids, yeah. right. Those are all things that were uh, at least partially, if not fully, funded by government. So those are the, uh, what do they say, the fractures and the inconsistencies in the field of apparent reality. Right. And, you know, people like Walmart, all these things are so successful. And it's like, yes, on the backs of shit made by the government. If Walmart couldn't truck goods across the United States or use rail systems to transport shit, they would not be profitable if they had to build all the roads to do that. And that that reality, like you said, yes, focus on the real reality of the reason this all works is government built underlying structure, not the fake reality that the government has gotten in the way and ruined fucking everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, their argument, I think, I've never met or encountered anything where a libertarian could argue their thought process all the way through. Uh, there's just so many hiccups that rely on like, well, human beings will be good uh, if we don't interfere at all. Uh, and that's like the basis of all conflict is only because of like government interference, I guess. I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it going here for a little bit. Yeah. If that's okay. Yeah, um, of course. Environmental catastrophe is one such real At one level, to be sure, it might look as if green issues are very far from being, quote unquote, uh, unrepresentable voids for capitalist culture. Climate change and the threat of resource depletion are not being represented so much as incorporated into advertising and marketing. What this treatment of environmental catastrophe illustrates is the fantasy structure on which capitalist realism depends, a presupposition that resources are infinite, that the earth itself is merely a husk which capital can at a certain point sloth off like a used skin, and that any problem can be solved by the market. In the end, Wally presents a version of this fantasy, the idea that infinite expansion of capital is possible, that capital can proliferate without labor on the off-world ship axiom. All labor is performed by robots, that the burning up of the Earth's resources is only a temporary glitch, and that after a suitable period of recovery, capital can terraform the planet and recolonize it. Yet, 
environmental catastrophe features in late capitalist culture only as a kind of, uh, what is that word? Simulacra? Can we look that up? I don't know what that is. I guess it's like simulation of some sort, but I have no idea. Well, first comes up as a video game series. Dude, he's just fucking making up words at this point. Uh, well, a simulacrum is a representation or imitation of a person or thing. Uh, okay. And I see uh, Baudrillard's name in the definition at Purdue, EDU. So I bet that it's a word that um, has been featured in, in Marxist theory because of Baudrillard. Okay. So, so, it's, so it's, it's basically a, a simulation or a representation of a real thing or an impression. Of a real and and how do you say it again? Uh, I didn't fuck. Simulacra? Simulacra. Okay. Yeah. Yet environmental catastrophe features in late capitalist culture only as a kind of simulacra. It's real implications for capitalism too, tra- too traumatic to be assimilated into the system. The significance of green critiques is that they suggest that far from being the only viable political economic system, capitalism is in fact primed to destroy the entire human environment. The relationship between capitalism and eco-disaster is neither coincidental nor accidental. Capitalism's need of a constantly expanding market, its growth fetish, meaning that capitalism is by its very nature opposed to any notion of sustainability. And I want to stop there. Um, It's, well, and it's so, I mean, he talks about Wally, but this concept now where so many sci-fi movies have moved towards like the real good thing will happen post-apocalypse has gotten pretty fucking large. Like it's almost like we're just inevitably marching into the forward, like forward thinking like, well, we are going to fuck this up. Everything is going to blow up. And now there's just nothing we can do about it. So at least we can be hopeful. A little enough will remain after we fuck it up. We can start fresh. Uh, seems to be like, it's such a, you know, uh, there's Wally. I don't remember the name of it. There's some shitty Tom Cruise movie uh, where he find he like gets sent back to earth uh, and finds like some resistance. It's like earth can be lived on again. Uh, fucking snow piercer. All of humanity is like stuck on a train. The only good thing is like three that escape the capitalist system. Uh, you know, there's quite a few movies where uh, the setup now is, well, we have fucked up to the point that we can't fix this. So hopefully we won't destroy everything to the point where nothing can live on. That's a pretty big shift from even like our youth, uh, where a lot of movies that we solve shit before the catastrophe, like Independence Day, shit is saved before everything gets blown up, you know, now at this point, everything's been blown up and we fix it after the blow up. Right. Uh, Which is uh, a pretty noticeable change. uh, Totally. What I wanted to say is that this paragraph here is really for me, why in my, uh, in my adult re political awakening or whatever, I shifted from being a, social democrat that was you know um still pro some sort of capitalism into 
someone that is attempting to uh, be an anti-capitalist or at least educate themselves on it, because I don't, I don't see how something that needs markets to be constantly expanding, that needs constant increased growth, right? It's, it's not enough that we have the growth that we had last quarter. We have to have more growth than last quarter. Yeah. And that it's a, um, you know, an extraction based uh, economy and that uh, it's a consumerism economy. So you need more extraction and more consumerism consistently. I just don't see how a system like that can be sustainable. It just doesn't make sense to me. No. And it's like it for me, it's just in every other it comes back to like capitalism is the only thing that can exist. Because in every other intelligent test, intelligence testing scenario, uh, forethought and planning are taken really highly into how intelligent that creature is. You know, I mean, like when you're testing toddlers' intelligence, they always do the thing like, "Do you want one marshmallow now, or if you can wait for ten minutes, you'll get three marshmallows or whatever." Um, that's just like a smaller microcosm of like, well, we know if we keep doing this, if we make this bad immediate decision, we're gonna fuck ourselves. Uh, but it's easier to comprehend that than it is to plan 10 years into the future and wait for the results to be better than. Um, and it's just like, so forethought and planning are, you know, patience is supposedly essential for a lot of parts of your adult life. Like I'm supposed to be patient and save my money and plan for the future. Um, yet we all just wholeheartedly, uh, support this system. That's just fucking, uh, like a train that is running on a track that hasn't been completed yet. And we're just all hoping that that track is laid uh, before we get there. And we don't have any talk of slowing the train down or, you know, it's just fucking mind boggling to me that every, so many other facets of life, we treat completely the opposite, except for the thing that has the largest consequences. Yeah. All right. Do you want to, um, yeah. to go from here? Yeah. But green issues are already a contested zone, already a site where politicization is being fought for. In what, follow- in what follows, I want to stress two other appropriates in capitalist realism, which are not yet politicized to anything like the same degree. The first is mental health. Mental health, in fact, is a paradigm case of how capitalist realism operates. Capitalist realism insists on treating mental health as if it were a natural fact, like weather, Parentheses, but then again, whether is no longer a natural fact, so much has a political economic effect. End parentheses. In the 1960s and 70s, radical theory and politics, parentheses, Lang, Foucault, Deleuze, and Guattari, etc., in parentheses, coalesced around extreme mental conditions such as schizophrenia, arguing, for instance, that madness was not a natural but a political category. <clears throat> but what is needed now is the politicization of much more common disorders. Indeed, it is their very commonness which is the issue. In Britain, depression is now the condition that is most treated by the NHS. In his book, The Selfish Capitalist, Oliver James has convincingly posited a correlation between rising rates of mental distress and the neoliberal mode of capitalism practiced in countries like Britain, the USA, and Australia. In line with James' James's claims, I want to argue that it is necessary to reframe the growing problem of stress and distress in capitalist societies. Instead of treating it as an incumbent on individuals to resolve their own psychological distress, instead, that is, of accepting the vast privatization of stress that has taken place over the last 30 years, we need to ask, how has it become acceptable that so many people, and especially so many young people, are ill? The mental health plague in capitalist societies would suggest 
that instead of being the only social system that works, capitalism is inherently dysfunctional and that the cost of it appearing to work is very high. Obviously, as part of that generation, I would say at work, when I had a job, that more people I worked with were on antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication that weren't. And it was just seen as a super common thing. I mean, it was no exaggeration, a very common like, oh shit, we're on a break or a lunch. People would be like talking about their changes to like their Wellbutrin um, or their Xanax or Klonopin. Um, Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just sad that the majority of people um, need those things just to fucking wake up and go to their shitty ass job. And I, uh, you know, self-medicate with weed. Uh, so it's just like a slightly different fucking thing. I mean, the constant shouldering that the work, uh, it's the stress for me was that the work will never be done. There is never this point where we reached our goal, um, where we can pat ourselves on the back and be like, all right, we fucking did it. It's the second this project or this new store is opened, it's we immediately have to be focusing on the other one. There's never a break in it. There's never some point where like, oh, I can just take two weeks and relax. It's just fucking constant, like go, go, go. Um, and the second you start to falter, it's not that there's something wrong with the work mission. There's something wrong with you for not being able to keep up. Like we just need to get somebody who's more in line with our beliefs or, or I, I, you're just not matching our ideals currently. Um, it's always you're guilty of fucking this up. There's nothing we could have been doing wrong or could rethink on our end. And I can say that I wasn't good at standing up to it. Um, and unfortunately, I have never worked in a place where there was anybody who was good at standing up to that momentum. Uh, yeah, but but it's not about, in my opinion, it's not about the individual. You know, it's about uh, collective. And, oh, no, for sure. That's what I'm saying. Like, the like whole it's, not on, it's not on you to fix capitalism you know it's on us to work together to fix capitalism right yeah and i guess my point more was that like you're not even allowed to have the suggestion of something being different like anytime you bring up any sort of like oh maybe we could do it this way and it would be easier on people um it's like stop being lazy and stop thinking that if if they didn't want to work for money they wouldn't be doing this job uh i guess finish her out or add Yes, I have had the same experiences you have. You know, it's hard for me to, because I haven't lived in a different world. It's, I don't know how much of our mental health is due to, um, our, is due to capitalism, but I do, it does seem to me that there would be a, um, a significant drop. I, I do think well, there's just- a significant drop. But then again, if we move to a, um, if we move to a degrowth egalitarian society, maybe in a few generations, people would be stressing about other things. Maybe. Yeah, I don't oh, know. Of course. I don't know. I mean, yeah, you know. that's true. I would just say that we're but in maybe like, it wouldn't be a pandemic or an epidemic or whatever. Yeah. And we're just in like a different, all of these things that were supposed to make work easier, email, communication networks, having everything on a server that was supposed to make shit easier. Um, but what I encountered uh, was that there was no excuse to delay anything ever again. Like, there, you couldn't be like, oh, I'm waiting for that letter to come in the mail, or, oh, shit, we couldn't find that packet, so we're having to start from scratch. That sort of shit just disappeared. So anything, there are, it seems like those barriers um, weren't torn down to help make, obviously they weren't torn down to help make work life more bearable for the worker. Um, those barriers were torn down uh, so that businesses would have no more wait time on completing tasks. Um, and that just makes it more stressful. 
uh, and I'm gonna super tangent, but like with the post office in the early nineties, there was this term called going postal. Uh, and it was the result of uh, a literal, I don't know the exact number, but a noticeable number of postal workers um, losing their shit and resorting to like violence and things at work. And I just on um, YouTube research, I guess, found that a huge part of it was that they uh, mechanized parts that had used to be done by humans. So they were now sorting mail um, with scanning machines, uh, but they didn't replace all parts of the chain with automated system. So now there were people who were counting through 60 letters every 10 minutes were now expected to get through that same amount in a minute to keep up with the machine. And I think that's happened to a lot of things throughout the workplace where these things were initially designed to make a system more efficient, but they won't allow the whole thing to be mechanized. So now humans have to act as a living part of that mechanization structure. And it just, you know, you can't keep up with that shit because we have to sleep and eat and have social experiences and do things that, you know. Because we're not machines. Right, exactly. We're not machines, you know. And it's so sad, too, because the culture has taught all of us, including those postal workers, that it has done such an effective job at, like, isolating and atomizing us that instead Mm -hmm. of that worker being like, you know, this is absurd, I'm going to reach out to my my coworkers and we are going to demand changes, uh, whether regardless of what those changes are, rather than doing that, the only thing they feel like they can do is go and, and shoot those same coworkers, you know, and, and supervisors too. But it's just so sad that, um, that you see that in everywhere people just, and, and I understand to a certain extent or not to a certain extent, I totally understand why, like we're not given the tools to understand how to unionize or, or why we should even unionize or, or work collectively in any sense. And they, be, uh, and they set so many things up to be viewed as a personal failure. The feeling that I got at work was like, just if you couldn't admit that anything was wrong, because then you, it would be all on you. And if, Every once in a while, a person would have a day where they would like break down and you'd be okay with it. But instead of being like, oh shit, I'll feel the same way, everybody would be like, oh, it'll be okay. You'll get over this. Uh, it's not, you know, it's just you're having an off day. You're having a bad day. It'll all make sense again tomorrow, sort of shit. Um, when in reality, like, and I'm guilty of that, watching somebody break down, knowing full well that I'm like fucking one email away from being at that state and still just being like, oh man, that's fucking sucks. I I don't know where you're coming from because I don't want to admit to my boss that I'm also freaking out right now. And like I've said before, I've had a little bit of a different experience in my line of work, but that's only because I'm hourly, not salary. salary. So when I've gone to bosses and been like, hey, I'm not saying I need to leave right now, but I just want to let you know, like I have for some reason right now, really high anxiety which this is something that's actually I've actually done and they've been awesome. And they've been like, okay, cool. And then a little bit later, they've been like, Hey, I know you normally stay for a couple more hours, but we slowed down. If you'd like to get out of here, you can. And in that moment, I'm like, Oh, thank you so much. And I leave and I go do whatever helps me depress. But then when you look at it, that it's just helping their labor numbers. Right. And if they actually needed me to stay to, to improve their their thing, right. Then they would be like, no, or if they were like, okay, you can leave. That's like, whether it's written or not, it's a demerit in their mind. Right. You're not going to get scheduled for another Friday night shift. If right. 
and I and I do honestly feel like like I have years of serving experience. I've been uh, back waiting, which is basically busing at this establishment for almost a year now. And I feel like a large part of why they haven't moved me up is because of situations like that, where they know where, I mean, and they might not talk about it or whatever, but they're just like, Mike's a little bit more frail, a little bit more feeble than other people. And that might be true. So it's, it's interesting how those things can, the negative um, ramifications can manifest themselves in a variety of ways. Some of them are not uh, direct, you know? Yeah. No, I'll, uh, I'll hit this up. The other phenomenon I want to highlight is bureaucracy. In making their case against socialism, neo neoliberal ideologues often excoriate the top-down bureaucracy, which supposedly led to institutional sclerosis and inefficiency in command economies. With the triumph of neoliberalism, bureaucracy was supposed to have been made obsolete a relic of an unlamented Stalinist past. Yet this is at odds with the experiences of most people working and living in late capitalism, for whom bureaucracy remains very much part of everyday life. Instead of disappearing, bureaucracies, bureaucracy has changed its form. And this new decentralized form has allowed it to proliferate. The persistence of bureaucracy in late capitalism does not in itself indicate that capitalism does not work. Rather, what it suggests is that the way in which capitalism does actually work is very different from the picture presented by capitalist realism. In part, I have chosen to focus on mental health problems and bureaucracy because they both feature heavily in an area of culture which has becoming increasingly dominant by the imperatives of capitalist realism, education. Through most of the current decade, I worked as a lecturer in a further education college. And in what follows, I will draw extensively on my own experiences there. In Britain, further college or further education colleges used to be places which students often from working class backgrounds were drawn to if they wanted an alternative to more formal state education institutions, educational institutions. Ever since further education colleges were removed from local authority control in the early 1990s, they have become subject both to market pressures and to government imposed targets. They have been at the vanguard of changes that would be rolled out through the rest of the education system and public services. A kind of lab in which neoliberal reforms of education have been trailed or have been trialed. And as such, they are perfect, they are the perfect place to begin an analysis of the effects of capitalist realism. You know, like I talked about earlier, libertarians, their ideal is that like government's gone and bureaucracy's gone and blah, blah, blah. And they just fucking fail to note that no capitalist thing works without bureaucracy. Medicaid has less administrative costs than private insurance companies. It's just what the focus of the bureaucracy is. Things like government programs, the focus of the bureaucracy is to make sure that the program works. If it's an education program, their focus is on the number of people graduating, the number, you know, what reading proficiencies are, what math proficiencies are, and tailoring the system to make those outcomes the highest. 
Um, that's just a small example. Whereas the second that a uh, education system becomes privatized, it now has that same amount of bureaucracy, but it's focused on the profit margin instead of the effect of, you know, how effective that program is. Um, or, more, or more bureaucracy, you know? Yeah, yes, um, yes. Like maybe they're doing advertising or marketing, right? Um, they got to make sure they're not being sued for the fucking shadier shit that they're doing. They have to right. make sure the right. new profit gouging thing will be seen well by the public. Yeah, um, PR, yeah. Yeah, it's the switch comes from it being an effective program to being a profitable program. In almost every instance that I have personally encountered, um, profitable programs work significantly less effectively than a program that is aimed at efficiency um, yeah. and success. It's just, yeah, it's it's fucking absurd. Well, and and I'm excited because as the chapters continue. Uh, Mark Fisher really goes into depth on that topic or on those topics. And uh, so with that, I feel like um, we can kind of wrap up today. Um, I, I really appreciate um, Paul spending his time with me doing this. It's a lot of fun and we appreciate y'all um, spending time with us. Uh, I hope uh, you all enjoy your day and whatever you're doing. <laughs>